All those things. Yeah. Do I have to do this? I guess. God damn it. You are now experiencing technical difficulties. This is Adam, and I am joined as usual by Greg, Adam, and Patrick. And we're at Gen Con. Yay! Uh, and we're doing a panel today on uh, the 10K Lakes campaign and our experiences in running it as a living campaign. So, Greg, Adam, and Patrick, explain yourselves. <laughs> so, I'm also a part of technical difficulties and work together with Adam. Yes. Uh, yes, I am uh, role playing exchange and I work with Patrick on quite occasion, many of an occasion. I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Don't believe him, he's a liar. No, no, I'm not happy. Uh, dead inside, dead inside. Uh, yeah, I'm on, uh, I'm, I'm on RBX uh, when, they, when the schedules line up and whatnot, so sometimes it happens. And then um, for what we're talking about, we're talking about Red Market's 10K Lakes, which is a living campaign we're doing for the podcasts. Uh, living in the sense that it is between all the different podcasts, it also uh, incorporates other people who aren't affiliated with it at all. There's probably, what, over a dozen... Maybe a couple dozen players. We've got a couple dozen players. We've got uh, technical difficulties, role-playing exchange, insert quests here, occasional guest cameos from you know RPPR. I'm sure we could figure out other new and upcoming podcasts that have spawned off of this ridiculous exercise. Come in. We've started. We're happy to have you. Oh, our audience doubled. Hey. <laughs> I know. They're just piling in. Uh, but yes, the thing is... E- uh, for a living campaign, even though what we've done was specifically for the podcast, it is certainly able to be replicated amongst groups of friends and larger groups of people. So that was kind of the purpose of this panel. Yep. So, so had anyone had done a living campaign before? Mm-hmm. Not I. No, not I. I mean, the closest we've done is worldwide wrestling for the podcast, but that's on a much smaller capacity and a much smaller scale. Yeah. So. Ah, oh. well, take care. Yeah, down the hall a little bit. But thankfully now they're only halving our population. <laughs> <laughs> fun with math. Yeah. Fun with math. Enjoy. Sorry, fun with maths. <laughs> Return. So, part of that is we built it around the role-playing game Red Markets, which we're all fans of, and we're all fans of Caleb, and his any nominated game. But uh, part of the reason why we're able to do 10K Lakes is that it is a system that lends itself to larger groups and pick up, pick down play. So that's kind of the first aspect we wanted to focus on is in order to build a successful living campaign, you really need to think about what game you're running it in. Mm-hmm. Okay, because so sort of to unpack that, what do you think are the characteristics of specifically bed markets that helped and how could you translate that into another system or, or what would you think is another system that so I think the thing would that work makes... in a similar way? Red Market's particularly good at this that I think other systems may struggle with is its episodic nature. Hmm. So unlike a, a more campaign-centric game like D&D or even Shadowrun, it is organized around the single-session job. You get together, you negotiate, you get a job, you go out to it, you get to the job site, you do the work, and, it, and you're done. And there's a natural conclusion at the end of every of every job that is its own story arc. In contrast, unless you're intending to do so, Shadowrun moves more towards longer story arcs. D&D is based around longer story Mm -hmm. arcs. I would even argue that games like Fate or more narrativist games 
want you to be thinking more long term. And although you can certainly do that in red markets with job lines, the game is really structured towards the one shot, which means that in our case with 10K Lakes, we have four primary GMs who have been able to run almost 30 games through relatively loose communication just by building a jobs bank. Thanks, Patrick. You're welcome. Uh, yeah, that was my... <laughs> I wrote five jobs. Patrick wrote 40. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, you only run like four of them. Like most of the unwrote jobs, run one jobs are also mine. <laughs> well, there's so many. <laughs> it's like the audience question again. Yeah. So what do you think, Greg? Um, yeah, I, th- I think really the camp, a game that structures itself in drop in, drop out is kind of really what you need to do with something that is not based on longer story arcs. Although that, that can work, and I'll get to that in a moment. Um, but like I mentioned earlier, one of the things we're doing on the podcast is worldwide wrestling. And that works on two functions. That works as the game concept because it is a professional wrestling role-playing game. So it's something that is inherently episodic in nature. Uh, but also system-wise, it's powered by the apocalypse, which encourages rapid character growth and encourages creating characters and then allowing them to pass on into NPC and then building new characters to replace them. So, so you're saying the Kofefe goes both ways? Indeed. <laughs> it's, it's kind of like a world... That one, like uh, the wrestling one is really... We're building the world, and we're not building the characters. The characters are just kind of passing through it. Yep. Mm-hmm. But I guess at the same time, you could also look at red markets like that. It's like we have players oh, that yeah. would drop in and drop out continuously. And, and maybe that's the the central conceit: is that if your game is built around the setting, as red markets and worldwide wrestling are, then the characters become experiments. And we'll talk about a failed experiment momentarily. Sorry. <laughs> you're fine, you're fine. Um, but yeah, once you have picked out your game, then the next thing you really have to do is work on that campaign structure. Like Adam had mentioned, one of the things that really helped 10K succeed is we had done a session of setting generation before mm-hmm. we had started. And then we have had regular GM meetings where the main people who are running the game meet together and talk about what's going on. And then we've also developed the session tracker because because of the nature of red markets, you can choose out of several jobs each time you sit down to play. So we have a bank of many jobs that are available such that it can run it can be run from episode to episode. And that so, wouldn't sort of make sense in D and D, like a list of dungeons to delve in? I don't know. You can really translate that into, into another system, do you think? I think you could do it with a, with a, a D&D setting like... Um, X-Girl? That or um, Planes. The word just went out of my head. Somebody help me. Planes? Oh, like... Planescape? Like Planescape, oh, thank yeah, you. Yeah. Um, and the City of Doors. Mm-hmm. In that you, you could have... In fact, you could probably just use the exact same structure. All right, I'm going to hire you. Go through that door. Where does it go? I don't know. Yeah. Hold your breath when you go through it. All right. <laughs> um, but where I think you would run into trouble is if you were trying to run a more, a more Tolkien-esque flat fantasy game where it's like there isn't the economy necessary 
to create the, the imbalances that drive a game like Red Markets. Um, so, yeah, that's what I think about that. And then we'll get more into tech in a little bit, but again, having that session bank and having a centralized location where people can look and see what they want to run on a given night. And then similarly, thanks to um, Laura's hard work, we've also <laughs> established a consequences section of that bank. So not only does it list what we had run, it lists what had happened when this scenario yes. was run. So then that way you're able to have a constant run of who did what what night, but also what happened that night. What was the consequences of what happened? Who got upset? Who was happy that you did what you did? And just a, one more plug for that session tracker is that we were able to keep track of our spots, plus rep spots, minus rep spots, as they appeared. And then it wasn't GM dependent to remember that that had happened. For listeners who don't know red markets, uh, rep spots are basically the perception of the group in the setting. So you can see that they, by saying he like, got a negative rep spot, you can see we pissed off this guy or we did a favor for this guy with a plus rep spot. Yeah. Uh, and that, I think that sort of came out of one of the things I, I, I wanted to do was um, I didn't want the job bank to be static. Um, so I tried to push for jobs having like life expectancies and eventually they'll go stale like and something will happen if someone else because if you don't take a job someone will mm-hmm. and that uh, led to some interesting consequences and that, that could lead to some interesting consequences uh, do we want to talk about hope or do we want to do that later we'll do that in a bit we'll do that <laughs> it'll in happen. a bit it'll happen um, but speaking of hope the one of the things we're going to talk about hope is hope is one of the in-game cities that was created and eventually destroyed. Yeah, hope <laughs> was a, a hippie farm, wasn't it? It was a hippie farm. Yeah, but the point of that is it was created, and that's something I do want to hone in on for a few moments. Is both um, one thing that really helps a living campaign is collaborative world building mm-hmm. yep. and, and session, session creation, and then also having. Um, a re- it's really key for a living campaign to have a quote-unquote player's contract and just having that player buy-in at the beginning of the campaign and knowing what you're getting into. So I, can't, I think kind of going back to how we built uh, 10K, we just had that world-building session mm-hmm. before we started, and we just all looked at that map of Minnesota, and we <laughs> saw things that stuck out to us, things that interested us, things we wanted to... Investigate. So, can you speak on that? Yeah. That also we use that to establish like power dynamics in the region. Like, mm-hmm. who are these guys? What do they need? What do they export? Who are the big fish in this pond? Who are the little fish in this pond? And that's where we've got things like Mayo and Castle Rock, and you know, who are the wolves in sheep's clothing, which you have to forget about in character. Well, that's an uh, interesting issue to have dealt with as the game has progressed mm. in terms of how do secrets in in setting secrets stay secret. Oh, that could be a whole uh, discussion episode, secrets oh, in gaming. Oh, metagaming. We don't know anybody who does that. I think um, a while ago there was a podcast called Brilliant Gameologists who did a pretty good episode on secrets, but that was like when I was at uni, so that was at least seven years ago. They're probably <laughs> off long. They probably pod faded by now. I'd have to look them up. In any case, uh, when we did setting generation, um, ordinarily in red markets, it, you do collaborative setting creation focus on a single enclave and because we wanted to have more flexibility than that what we decided to do instead was have many 
micro-enclaves. So, you know, the part of Minnesota that we were talking about is relatively sparsely populated, um, and, so, and is primarily farmland. And so there were lots of little opportunities, besides the Mayo Clinic, obviously, to say, well, there's an enclave here, but it only has 20 people. There's an enclave over here that's got maybe a few more, I'm thinking of Valentino, mm -hmm. but has its own issues. Yeah. And yeah. in each of the cases... Valentino had issues? <laughs> I don't apologize. I won't apologize for it. <laughs> um, we built each of the mini enclaves essentially to be its own character. And in some cases that worked extraordinarily well. And in some cases we learned some lessons. It's <laughs> um, Speaking of characters, uh, the individual characters, I think it really depends on how many people you have in your campaign. Like again, for us, we have almost a couple dozen people. Yeah. So one thing you really need to have in that player buy-in is not just buy-in in this campaign you're running, but buy-in in the character they're creating. Because the more people you're going to have in this living campaign, the less opportunities for character moments, mm -hmm. which can still happen. Um, we had, like, for example, my character, NRG, in one of the sessions that I was in, I was able to have a character moment based off of one of my spots, where I nearly got everybody killed by running into a uh, abandoned rest stop just to have a break. <laughs> but that was a character moment that was built based off of the session design and the design of the system because that is built into my character as a Red Markets character. Uh, if you're doing something that's more Dungeons and Dragons that has a little bit less character-based um, statistics, you might not be able to have as many character moments or moments where you're building your character. Or you so may have to build those in in a way that you would not otherwise have to in a game like Red Markets. So when you're making your character, you just you have to go in knowing that you might not be able to personalize them or uh, flesh them out as much as you normally would. Now for us, now that we're 30 plus sessions deep and people have been in many games, you, you do eventually get that just through sheer force of will, but that's not a guarantee. You really need to go in there knowing that I might not have as much development on this character as I would want. Well, I think one of the huge problems that I had with uh, character development for Shears was there's this level of disconnect so everything keeps going when you're not there and the world just keeps spinning and going just like the real world but at the same time unless I that I unless I'm following the group me religiously which I do not then <laughs> you know I, I, all right guys let's play what what happened to hope kind of thing like that and like you're just totally waylaid mm -hmm. so if i were going to and i know this is real early in the campaign i mean a campaign the panel to be discussing what i'd do different i think that if you were going to do a living world campaign where it's drop in drop out i think some efforts should be made to do recaps of every session that happened before even to the point of like the GM who ran it is responsible for maybe, you know, a paragraph or two blurbs just so everyone can yeah. keep caught up on it. Also worth pointing like out, um, if you have this drop-in, drop-out structure, some people are going to be able to play more often than others, and that's going to lead to power creep. Yep. You're going to have some guy leveling up because he can play every week, 
Uh, I'm not speaking from personal experience because time zones are a bitch. What? Uh, and then someone who can play once every month. His like if he ends up in the in a, in a session where with everyone else who could play weekly, he's five levels behind. And I'm trying to be generalised here, like because red markets is a point by thing, but you know what I mean. Uh, so like with Catfish, he, he was rapidly like outstripped by, by everyone just because I couldn't play very often. Uh, it also didn't help that he was kind of like a fuck-up by design. Like his, his, the point of his character was that he was ill-suited right. to the apocalypse. I think he rolled his main skill once in his entire career. <laughs> and that was just because there wasn't much in the way of electronics <laughs> in this extremely rural part of the world. A, a similar thing happened to me with energy because I was only in several sessions... But the tactics I was able to use that really helped was just leaning into character concepts and leaning into your statistics as a character sheet. Um, like I'd mentioned in that instant where I was using some of my spots to get myself into trouble, I was focusing on that to you know, at least build out and flesh out who I was. And even though my stats weren't in my favor, it still ended up working out for the best. My character survived that session. Good um, was he was a face, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. So a face is sort of always useful in Red Markets. There, there is always a need for a face in that session hmm. in negotiations, right? Yes. So that's the theory. That's, that's the theory. <laughs> uh, so you think there's, there's sort of something to be said about when you're building a character for a living campaign to go for that kind of generic archetype, I, something so that's I, always going to be useful? I think about it the other way around. I, I think that the, the best thing to do, assuming your system supports it, is to pull on Ethan. Uh, Ethan is on technical difficulties. He has a love for creating characters that are optimized for a different game. <laughs> so he'll look at your game. He'll look at a cleric. Your... What? <laughs> Pardon? <laughs> he hasn't done that yet. I hope he will this soon. Um, he'll build a character that, on paper, is optimized for a different game concept altogether, and then he'll walk that character into your game and go, here I am, and proceed just to do, just to act completely in character. And make it, I won't say make it work, because it frequently doesn't, but he creates situations of failure that are so much fun to play with. And I think that is what really points to what a living campaign needs. You can't just move from success to success. You have to have moments that balance the abilities of the, the, of the whole, which gets to this question of power creep, mm. but also shows off the fundamental humility of <laughs> your own little fucked up band of you know, sociopaths. <laughs> or maybe that's just red markets. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, um, you know, one of the things that I think we were able to get around was player quorum. We have so many players. We have four GMs, five if we need them, that if we said, hey, let's get a game together on a day, we almost never missed. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to build a backlog very quickly and very deeply for a while we were playing every week and I think once or twice we played twice a week yeah. so there were so many of opportunities and although it's dropped off a little like it could pick right back up again if it wanted to because we have new players coming in who want to play more often um, but Patrick tell us about time zones and how they're a bitch <laughs> well it's not as bad as it could be because as I've mentioned before I work nights so my 
lunch breaks are like 8 p.m. Uh, when, uh, <laughs> uh, which is when I, I would write a bunch of jobs because the cafeteria was empty and no one was like, I'm just going to bring my tablet and inflict a horrible thing upon you. Uh, <laughs> Hooray! And then like I'd get home at like midnight and I'd be like, well, every, the world is dead, but everyone's online. So I, I don't know that. <laughs> uh, but that couldn't always happen because if I had to have an early, early night, uh, that was like the prime slot there after mm -hmm. that. So if anything happened to that, uh, I couldn't play, which meant I think Catfish has been in four sessions in total? Three or four sessions, yeah. Yeah, and I've GM'd once. But I had plenty of time to write material. Right. Yeah. So that that's definitely something that you really need to be cognizant of is being cognizant of people's time zones. So one thing that we did that helped is. Uh, oh, you guys can tell I'm from the UK. <laughs> <laughs> really? Lies. Um, so one thing that we've really done is we've had uh, we use Google Hang we use Google Hangouts to record, but we also use Google Calendars to keep track of when a game is going to be available and when it's running. Mm -hmm. We use GroupMe and Discord to talk with each other and keep open lines of communication. So that's definitely something you would want to do mm -hmm. in your living campaign, is you really... Communicate. Even if you're able to do it in person, still just having calendars so you know when you're meeting, you know where, where you're meeting, just really can help keep everything all together and keep everything calm and how it needs to be run. And it's not even just from the organizational standpoint of are you free at this point in time. It's, you know, if there's 20-some people playing a game, chances are I've never played with Catfish when I played it. I played Red Markets or anything like that. But just the communication and a lot of time people are doing stuff in character and things like that that we had happen through our group me, it just built that sense of community mm -hmm. and... You know, we're talking about player buy-in at the very beginning, and if you if you don't have people talking to people and you're, everything's occurring, you know, in a vacuum, then you're just going to have people going to drift away. Yep. And stuff like that. So it's more than organizational. So I think that's a good segue for talking about tone. Oh fuck! It got dark. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So we had to take place right. that. <laughs> cause some conflict and dissension um, and we've had over time a number of conversations in general about how do you identify and stick with a tone for the game you know in lots of different settings tone is pre-established you're all murder hobos go out and murder things um, Red Markets is this really wonderful and broad spectrum of tones from the most bleak possible, you know, just really digging into that bust and that economic horror, all the way out to the boomiest, we're just here shooting zombies and having fun. And early on we had decided, based on, you know, not really having the kind of consistent character-driven moments that we think make a bust game listenable to. Um, regardless of whether or not it's playable, but Bust, Bust also has more rules to it. So it's more rules. It's thing, yeah. harder to stay up to date. Uh, we decided to go for a Bust game. No, we decided to go for a Boom game. Boom game. Excuse me. Boom game. You and Chris decided to go for a Bust game and well, didn't tell us. Yeah, well, I didn't do that. <laughs> That's the discussion. I like, I like running Bust, but we had decided the general tone would stay Boom. And then we had a job not get picked up. 
and the consequences that were chosen for that job were not well discussed. We had created an enclave. As we mentioned earlier, we had lots of mini enclaves. Uh, and my character's uh, dependent was in one of those mini enclaves named Hope. And the consequences of a job had a giant horde of zombies, fast sprinter zombies, descend on Hope and destroy it. So in a moment, my character was put into a really weird narrative position, which was not entirely unexpected, given how terrible a character concept it was. Um, but also, we'd had a radical change to the setting that hadn't been well discussed. Yeah. Um, and so, after a significant back and forth, it was decided that there would be no more major changes, like single black swan events, <laughs> unless all of the GMs had decided that that was something that they wanted to do, so that it could be incorporated into jobs in the future. Because right. there were any job that had been written before Hope was taken off the map, had it assumed that it was part of the setting. Yep. And jobs that took place after that, or that were written afterwards, of course, did not have that in mind, but you, there were situations where jobs that crossed that Rubicon were offered at the same time. Mm -hmm. That created some cool character moments. Wait, what do you mean Hope's gone? <laughs> it's a Nathaniel Hawthorne-ish kind of approach. <laughs> allegorical, if you will. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of that going on. And yeah, I mean, we still, we still could have minimized at least some things. Like we could have, you, we could have easily said that your character's dependent had escaped. Yeah. yeah. Or, I was looking for a way to retire that character. <laughs> you know, how's that for a character vignette? Run from the vectors. <laughs> <laughs> Try to bond. So, you so know, actually, I think this, let me wrap up by saying my piece of this by saying before. that, in terms of character concept, in terms of tone. Sometimes the tone of particular setting locations, particular character concepts, and even particular events within the setting really do need to be vetted heavily. Mm -hmm. um, I created a character that was <laughs> terrible. Have you Please name your sins, my son. <laughs> That's my mind. Yeah. Um, so I created this character named Misty. She, she was built as the cheerleader stereotype from zombie films, but with her brain replaced by the alpha football player. <laughs> um, and she was a combat monkey. I had wanted to run a combat monkey in the system for a while, and it gave me an opportunity to have this completely crazy anime combat monkey. Little girl, big spear. That's not a metaphor, I swear. Um, and as the game, as she, her appearances progressed, pieces of those stereotypes came out that I think made folks uncomfortable in a way that I didn't, had not intended. I intended it to be a jokier character. And over time, it became clear that the joke had worn thin. Mm -hmm. um, and so midway through our first season, the character just got retired. Yeah. Uh, the destruction of hope was a useful uh, inflection point for that, but what it comes down to is, especially if you are in a position of privilege, 
choosing to play a stereotyped character, even if you want to be respectful or, you know, wanting to undermine those stereotypes, puts you in a position where you, if you fail, you're an asshole. And that kind of vetting, I think, may have prevented that a little bit more. How about Valentino? Yes, well, so, oh, we, we both can talk about we that. Can talk, we can both talk yeah, about Valentino. The concept of Valentino as a, as a zombie survivor on Clover was that it was a, a uh, all-male boarding school which had you know, nice high fences uh, and was, was you know, out, in, out, in, out in fields because you know, they wanted to have the strapping young legs play lacrosse and blah, 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 blah. And the strapping young lads. And the original, I think you came up with it originally. Oh yeah, it was super dark. And they had a, a culty vibe to them that... Uh, the culty vibe stayed. The, the culty vibe stayed. That in places we felt bordered on abuse. Yeah. And we yeah. were like, Hey, as a, as one of the gay players, I don't really feel comfortable with the explicitly like the only explicitly gay NPCs being kind of abusers because we have to deal with that constantly. Yeah. Can we take that in a different creepy direction? And so I I sort of took over Valentino and went Village of the Damned with it, uh, and now it's more of a <laughs> militarized kids that will kill you with their hockey sticks. Right. Uh, creepy. It's although creepy. even then. Uh, my character's uh, my character energy. He's his husband and his son also live at Valent lived at Valentino, but then one of those creepier aspects of Valentino before we calmed things down had popped up with uh, one of the teachers and one of my son's son, and that made things really super awkward. In which we did talk that out, and we had that character just go away. Yeah. Um, but then in my mind... And that's, that's fine. Like, don't feel bound to a canon in a living campaign. Right. Because it's living. Living yeah. means changing, and occasionally means dying. But even so if there is a bit that you don't think works, cut that bit out. Kill the darling. That's right. a big thing. X cards yep. need to be right. available, not just for specific situations but for pieces of canon that clearly don't work. Anymore. Like we had kind of X-carded that situation. Yep. Um, yeah. There's another situation popped up where my son is now being uh, indoctrinated into their cult-like aspects. But we're taking Still care creepy, of yeah. but not that flavor right. of creepy that we didn't want to go Indeed. for. So and it's a horror setting, so creepy is okay. We're yeah. able to take care of that for other aspects. Yes. Of course. Some things are creepy. But yes, just being very cognizant of um, how far is too far... If somebody is uncomfortable by something, giving them the freedom and the trust that they can talk and bring it up, yep. and then you can rectify that, and the uh, sureness with each other that you can cover that and clean it up. Yeah. Oh. I would like to elaborate on this just a hair with the... Lord, I can't remember which one, but it was one of the last games that I actually played. We had a, going out to a flotilla to ransack it for a Joel's and as that game progressed the flotilla was ran by you know almost the children of the damned these cannibalistic kids and things happened and during that course in time the I found out that I found my limit as a player when the violence was unfortunately occurring to the you know fictionalized crazy kids, and I do want to commend our players, you know specifically technical diff difficulties. Ethan, um, I would also like to 
shout raise name to the heavens on this is that like I literally kind of just stopped playing and just like something happened my character was injured I had a perfect excuse not to and everyone just kept going and you know I think that's what you're gonna have to do with these games kind of going back to an earlier concept here when you've got so many different people playing a game you have a lot of our you know individual baggage that no one GM can can take into consideration and that community that you can develop during the course of you know communication through message boards and whatnot just I don't know I got mother hand <laughs> in, in that episode and that kept me from just you know, guys, I'm going to walk away and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. I don't know. And no, you know, if you need to walk away, walk away. Yeah. And there's no shame in walking away. But I don't know. I just I was imp- I was horrified by the game that I was taking pl- that was taking place. But at the same time, you know, I've, I appreciated the mm-hmm. kindness that people presented. So we're the nicest people to unleash monsters on you. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the lessons we've taken away from this as we got into the second season of the campaign is we had a GM's meeting where we made it very explicit like what the boundaries would be, like what the guardrails would be for town. And mm-hmm. we haven't played as much as I'd like. Yeah. That has stayed true, is that even though we have Sean Ferris and Patrick writing jobs that... I'll never touch on anything that's like are super crazy. They're crazy in the context. And I think that agreement on tone, the willingness to build community and the willingness to communicate is what allowed our living campaign to keep moving. Do you want to pause for a little while and take some questions? Oh, absolutely. Sure, turn it over to the floor. (laughs) You've done a great job of covering most of what I would have asked already, but I get out. with such a large rotating cast and a living uh, living environment, how do you deal with not so much the intercharacter conflict, but interpersonal conflict that will come up with people with so many varying different personalities and backgrounds? Do you mean we play on the internet. <laughs> uh, but for the recording, that is, how do you deal with um, various interpersonal conflicts within actual people, not just characters? Yeah. So I think I mentioned this earlier that... Uh, my sensibility when I was approaching this was that, like, okay, it, it's we've got we've decided this is a boom, which means we've got X like tone, X rules, whatever, and then we've got some GMs that are approaching things from a slightly different perspective. And I don't think Chris knows how to run a boom game. I don't think he has it in his bones to I mean, run I... a game that isn't somehow existentially miserable. Uh, <laughs> I can run boom. Well, he lives games in Florida. I understand. Force, uh, <laughs> but I don't. Uh, so we did have that sort of in, among the GMs that kind of uh, I, I, I think I'm approaching this from this perspective and, and, and you guys are approaching it from this perspective and sometimes I felt like because um, I wrote a lot of jobs but I felt that some of them were getting left on the, on the shelf because uh, one of the factions that uh, we established as a big dog was Mayo who are Randians so they're ultra capitalist far right assholes and we are not those things I don't think anyone at this table or in the GM room was like those things. You're all assholes, but yeah. we're not but was, but <laughs> those my, kinds of assholes. But my logic was like, okay, they're the big players, so they're going to hire more. 
Yeah. But I don't think any Mayo jobs got taken, so there was a moment of like, are you guys like ignoring this on purpose? Or? <laughs> no, I, every time, just as on that point, I'm talking about interpersonal conflict, every time Laura played, yeah. if her character was there, uh, and Laura, of course, played Woodsman, who was... Um, would have been a shut-in in another universe. In this universe, he had turned into an ultra-dad. Um, <laughs> and if a Randian job came up, she was like, nope. Flat no. Yep. Just not taking that. Not going to work for those fuckers. <laughs> and that's... I think that which Bill... Is which, which is Which fair. is fair, but from the writer's perspective, this means my fruit is rotting on the soil. <laughs> oh. Oh. So I, just, I just I just cut it out and put it in another job. It's fine. It's performance art. Yeah. Well, actually, not exactly defensive. We did write Randians, and so that fruit was fairly rotten when we started there. That's one of those few factions that almost nobody in game has ever bought. Yeah. I managed to trick you into doing one, though, with a cure for money. Yeah, he did. It's good stuff. I mean, it's similar to like Eclipse phase and playing Ultimates, mm -hmm. which uh, was ironic now that they're yeah. eliminating Ultimates because we had a successful Ultimate in our campaign. But, and I think this one ties back to the point of communicate, which is like, okay, we all established that the the Randians are the the big players in it, but if like if we'd explicitly said like, okay, they're big, but like obviously fuck the Randians, I'd be like, I agree, fuck the Randians, uh, but the, we don't want to work for them, right. And then also... I would have, like, from, from my perspective, been like, okay, that's a lot of effort. I don't have some waste. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then also when you're at the table in the specific context, it needs to be both on the GM and the player side, but just being open, but even also just reading people, reading people's, you know, reading people's emotions, reading people's physical stature, you know, seeing how they're reacting to what is happening at the table, which for us it's hard because we're just doing an audio recording yeah. online. <laughs> But if you have that freedom that you're in person, just uh, you know, being cognizant of how people are reacting to things. And if you need to take a break and go, hey, is everything all right? Do we need to maybe change something up to make things work a little better? Uh, just having that yeah. trust within your group to have that flexibility. You know, yeah. clear expectations and eliminating the egos as well. Like, <laughs> I learned very early in this RPG. Kill the ego. <laughs> I learned very early in this entire process that the spots that I risk my neck for and take damage and bodily harm are never going to be used by me. It's the group. So, you know, everyone's got to have that expectation that there's less you, there's more this homogenous hope that you're, you're working towards. And I think it's that disassociative element of it that's kind of kept people together by, you know, you're kind of working for the greater good, and as you understand <laughs> the that, greater you put good. it... The greater good. Jumping back a little bit on the uh, spot tracker, where you kept uh, track of all of the rep spots, mm -hmm. um, I have to say one of the challenges I've run into in a smaller campaign is where if your players keep going back to the same job giver, the same line, mm -hmm. Uh, you run into that person who already knows some of the spots for the negotiator. Mm -hmm. So I took great pains to keep track of what spots my players already knew, as well as what spots did the job givers do. Um, keep in mind, I had four players who were there every single session, and no swapping out. 
Since you've had a living campaign, was that an issue? Um, did you have the same negotiator showing up week after week? Um, did they go to the same job givers, like ever? We had a few right. job lines, not mm -hmm. many. Right. Uh, and the wider, because I think we had, what, four negotiators in the Yeah, in the there's, four, there's like four or five faces in our and campaign. sometimes when we didn't have one, we just like went on GroupMe and said, hey, can we borrow your character for a bit? That, that actually happened for one session. <laughs> happened last group I, yeah. I, I was turned into an NPC for yeah. a night. And then because super useful. We all, and then because we had about 20 job sources as opposed to the one in the single campaign, uh, it didn't happen very often. But the few times it did happen, it was narratively appropriate. Yeah. And I think it worked out fine. Right. I, but you are right to highlight it as an issue to be aware of. Um, and we have the resources. Uh, we had created a setting tracker mm. early on that included specific job givers. Um, but I think we'd gotten away from keeping that up to date. And that's, that's a resource that I, if I had Need time. To be and just yeah. Google Sheet, you know, just a little like spreadsheet you can just put data into so it's easily visualized. Yep. Just to see like what's known and then struck through as you need it. Like Frank at the Apple Orchard now knows that NRG is a latent or whatever. Yeah, good. Oh, he has eyes. Good. Big <laughs> <laughs> uh, negotiator, not necessarily a wise choice because I'm going to add every single job giver a spot right off the bat by walking in the door. Indeed. Yeah. 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 So to kind of expose. <laughs> and to be able to expand that outside of red markets, just again. I know we've hammered on it several times with just having that line of communication, even having a shared Google document that was like, you know, these are aspects of this campaign that keep being focused on. Uh, this main NPC knows about this stuff because we did this job for them. Just, again, in order for a living campaign to be successful, you have to have the tools that allow you to be able to collaborate. So we've had really good success with them. Um, Google system because it's always online. I'm reading off of the notes we prepped for this off of a Google Doc that we have in our shared drive. So yep. and you can do like nested folders so we can have like the shared area everyone has, and then we've got the GM corner and then a job bank within that. And then we had separate folders for jobs that could be run, jobs that had expired, jobs that have been completed. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's it's if you're into bureaucracy, it's great. Right. And even if you want phys phys physical aspects, <laughs> even just like it, for home groups, you know, binders, folders. Yeah, some form of, some form of setting bible is, uh, and, and a common setting bible as opposed to the, the GM's like big folder that he brings to the table. Uh, yeah. Any other questions? So, having chosen the 10K Lakes region, and I don't believe any of your rotating cast live in the 10K Lakes region. Nope. <laughs> How challenging has it been to find interesting settings in that region? We're Not so glad you asked. <laughs> Not hard at all. Not hard at all. Like, I know we're, we're, we're doing this right now with Laura's um, Masada's Redoubt campaign where there's Google Maps. Yeah. It's a modern setting. There's Pull up Google, Google Maps. That looks weird. There's a town called Castle Danger. What the heck? Yeah. Let's... 
Yeah. We learned that. We learned because that. Because we saw that. We're like, what is up with this place? And then we used Google Maps, zoomed in. Yeah. Hey, there's a brewery. Ethan made a lot of these like Somali populations in Minneapolis. Like he made a whole right. we found out stuff that, around the dy- dynamics of that. Right, we found out about that. So that became an important part of the campaign because we wanted to respect the area. Uh, mm-hmm. Alice Obscure is a really good resource for uh, Jim. Oh, I didn't use it so much for this one, but for an Arizona-based campaign I did, I just went, what, what are you gonna guys going to see today? I had a job, <laughs> I had a job set around Arcasanti, which Oosh. is an experimental arcology. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, which is yeah. Um, so yeah, there's, there's there's resources even who don't have it, or you know you've got uh, stuff that is, I hate to say generic, but like everywhere has railways. So I had a job that is yep. just like find a rail car that was lost somewhere during the apocalypse because everywhere has has nice long rail tracks. You didn't take that one. I really like that one. <laughs> it had an aberrant in it. Oh, fuck you, uh, uh, <laughs> bastards. Uh, I kind of along the same lines. Uh, yes, Minnesota is very large and very rural. Legs are very important to the game. But aside from a few uh, specific examples, it seems like the urban areas are being pretty heavily avoided. Is that intentional? Is that. That's just a good rule of zombie fiction. Population density equals fatality density. So. Also, there is that. And one of the games that I ran, actually, last Gen Con, um, Gargorilla, was about dealing with some of these smaller suburban centers. And as it turns out, they're not empty, are they, Patrick? No, Adam, they're not. But that is, from what we have seen in the setting, materials that are available, unless you really want to run full bust, going into an urban setting, the system doesn't accommodate it well. There's also the um, the time gap because it's not set today. It's set like it was in it was set in the future, and then the apocalypse happened, and then a bit more happened. Yep. So you can say in that you can easily just hand wave in the time period, like oh yeah, this totally blew up and became a I don't know a tech center. Mm-hmm. And and then even when we do go into um, major population centers, like one of the more recent episodes I was in was Super Lad, which took place at a comic book convention. Uh, Eventually, because of the setting and just how many zombies are in the area, I was the only one who actually ended up completing the job because everybody else was too busy trying to save their own asses. The dead are walking. You're not bound to realism. One I did did find was um, Fantasy Flight Games. They have their basis in Minneapolis. Yeah, so that's what... um, yeah, so that's what Super Effective was based on, which is a, which was a job where you had to go and play Pokemon Go, in the in the zombie apocalypse. You monster! So, Questions? nerds spend money on Comments. dumb shit. Okay, Comments. I think everyone here mm-hmm. will acknowledge that. Um, so I just have to throw out um, the changes for Valentino. Those were good changes, and uh, <laughs> with the flotilla and learning one of your player spots, uh, once you find. Um, that edge of the comfort zone and the line and where you crossed and clear boundaries. Um, I know that communication becomes a very important issue at that point, but when you've got all of these job lines out there and there's a bunch of job lines that cross into squick territory, mm-hmm. um, how do you edit those and change those up? Like, just to throw it out there, I've got a um, Player who is absolutely terrified of spiders. Mm-hmm. So they're a person. In the past. So any job that I would write where 
spiders are a thing, I'm going to switch those out for some kind of other creature. Just mm -hmm. because Ants, scorpions, snakes, beetles. Yeah. They just became snakes instead. Yeah. Um, we're going to switch from spiders to snakes because it's still a creepy thing, but it's a different creepy thing. Right. And I, th I think that's a good point to kind of close things out on is just flexibility is just so key. Whether it is on the GM side and my player is afraid of spiders, so maybe I'll switch it out for a different monster. Or this session is going to require this specific skill set and these specific uh, character traits and nobody can make that knight that has those traits but I've got these people so maybe I can shift around the session for the knight to accommodate them and make the job possible so I'm not just letting these players walk into a TPK just because nobody has a profession animal handler yeah the yep. great thing about Google Docs is they're not written in stone you can just edit them like that. So and then on the player... Don't, don't be tied down to anything. <laughs> if you don't think it'll work, feel free to absolutely change it. And then anything. on the player side, it's just having that mix of people who are very highly focused and people who are more red magey and are able to have a deeper skill set. Like, that's something I've really built with my character is that even though he is the face, I at least have a point in a lot of different aspects. So I'm a little bit more flexible from job to job. Whereas other characters may be more highly focused, <laughs> which might make it make some jobs more difficult than others. But when their job hits and that specific plotline hits, it really, works really well. Yep. So I think we have a little more time for any additional questions. It Otherwise, is, we got. They want us out of fifty-five, is it? Yes. We've got five so, minutes. Oh, I got a bundle. Just up. throw out yeah. a statement rather than a question. Of course. Uh, mm -hmm. One thing I think you guys do really well that I wish I could see on other podcasts is the name with the blurb to remind you who the character is <laughs> oh. in the text. I miss that so much oh. going to other podcasts. See, it's so the copywriting is appreciated. Yeah. Right. I, I tell you this, and I'm glad you mentioned this because I think that, at least for our campaign, that's what makes it almost. I don't want to say listenable because mm. that makes it sound like we suck. Mm. But like, re, like you can, there's not a clear narrative. There's not an A, B, a to you know A B C kind of thing going on with 10K. Uh, the characters jump around and stuff like that. And if you know, say for example, you wanted to follow Catfish's character arc as it develops. All this of it. Yeah, you can. Yeah. You can pretty much. Like, if you index everything correctly, it makes it to where, you know, you could overlook the stuff that you're not as interested in, possibly. Mm -hmm. And that's been really helpful on the RPX site. And I, I, need, I need to update this. Oh, crap. I dropped my mic. I, uh, I need to update this, but we've been compiling all of the episodes and the order as close as possible in which they appear. So, you know, since he, since we've got two different podcasts that are posting the same world and stuff like that, it's, you know, <laughs> it's easy to get things confused. Yep. So just having that familiarity just really helps me when I'm editing stuff, and it helps the fans, obviously, yep. <laughs> keep everybody in check and keep everybody's all put together. Great. So that's kind of running a uh, living campaign. If you have any additional questions, feel free to hit us up on Twitter or on our website, Technical Difficulties, uh, POD at gmail.com. At Tech GDP. You can also look up Role Playing Exchange and everybody else. So yeah. thank you very much for attending and enjoy the rest of your Gen Con. Good night, Internet.